Huda Thunkers. This is Shannon, Zeb's fiance. I'm doing the recommendation section for the podcast again this week. I've really been enjoying that. Um, and Zeb has permitted me to continue doing it. So this week I'm going to recommend a television show on Netflix. It's actually a docuseries called Lenox Hill. Uh, Lenox Hill is a real hospital in New York City. And it follows uh, three different, well, several doctors, but but three main doctors, um, surgeons, and their um, course throughout their practice. Um, so you're working with neurosurgeons, there's an OBGYN, and there's also an emergency room um, attending. So the show is great. I love Grey's Anatomy, um, but this is real life Grey's Anatomy. It's people's real lives. It's real research. It's very interesting um, and something that I would recommend to all of our listeners today. Good luck checking that out and enjoy the podcast. Well, howdy, Hootathunkers. This is your host, as always, Zeb of the Hootathunker podcast. And thank you, Shannon, for that recommendation segment. And uh, sorry to the blog readers, um, but I really like letting Shannon do the recommendation segment as long as she also enjoys it. I think I'll continue that trend. If you are a blog reader who's tuned in just to listen to that, well, welcome. This is the audio segment, and this is how I did it way before the blog. So hope you enjoy it. But I think I might continue that, just handing my phone to Shannon asking her to record um, her recommendation segment or whatever she's watching, get a different perspective on things. We're, I think we're a pretty good team. That's why we're getting married. <laughs> well, so to begin this off this main event here, just as a disclaimer, this episode will be about a sexually transmitted disease, among other things. Um, usually I try to keep things light, but this involves an STD. So which STD, you might ask? Well, this is about syphilis. It's a sexually transmitted disease caused by treponemia pallidum, that's a bacterium. And let me start out by explaining how serious syphilis can be. From the CDC, syphilis is divided into stages, primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary, which with different signs and symptoms associated with each stage. A person with primary syphilis generally has a sore or sores at the original site of infection. These sores usually occur on or around the genitals, around the anus, or in the rectum, or in or around the mouth. These sores are usually, but not always, firm, round, and painless. Symptoms of secondary syphilis include skin rash, swollen lymph nodes, and fever. The signs and symptoms of primary and secondary syphilis can be mild, and they might not be noticed. During the latent stage, there are no signs or symptoms at all. So that's not that bad of a stage. Tertiary syphilis is associated with severe medical problems. That's what we're talking about here today. A doctor can usually diagnose tertiary syphilis with the help of multiple tests. It can affect the heart, brain, and other organs of the body. Like I said, syphilis, sexually transmitted disease. It could be very serious complications when left untreated, but it is a simple cure with the right treatment. During tertiary stage, syphilis can cause serious blood vessel and heart problems, mental disorders, blindness, nerve system problems, and even death. Yep, that's blindness, mental disorders, and death. I remember in junior high when they, you know, how everyone gets their STD talk, like, hey, this is what STDs are, kids, you know, watch out. I remember thinking STDs were just something gross that you had to bother with or, you know, the worst case scenario, you'd go to the hospital and get it taken care of, which would be a pain in the butt. And then they told us, if you don't get it treated, you could die or go blind or lose your mind 
or end up in a wheelchair. And I was like, what? I, I couldn't, I was in disbelief. I didn't think they were that serious, but they are. Today, the preferred treatment at all stages is penicillin. It's an antibiotic medication that can kill or the organism that causes syphilis. But guess what? Penicillin hasn't been around that long. When you think about the grand scheme of history like I do, it, although believed to have been used as far back as ancient Egyptians by the practice of applying poultice of moldy bread to the infected wounds, penicillin was not discovered by modern medicine until 1928. It was the first true antibiotic and was discovered by Alexander Fleming, the professor of bacteriology at St. Mary's Hospital in London. That means before antibiotics, you just had to suffer through. I mean, they had treatments, but, you know, pretty much you had it was a roll of the dice. You got syphilis, you might go blind or die. Um, but we'll get to pre-penicillin treatments later. For now, let's talk about the history behind the bacteria. And on the blog here, I got a nice, cool picture of Alexander Fleming. Awesome dude. Created, contributed quite a lot to society, more than I probably ever will. Um, especially if I'm just doing this podcast. <laughs> now, here's a quote, the history behind syphilis. A quote from the Journal of Medicine and Life, uh, Brief History on Syphilis, published just in 2014. So pretty, pretty recent when it comes to journals. Um, from the very beginning, syphilis has been a stigmatized, disgraceful disease. Each country whose population was affected by the infection blamed the neighboring and sometimes enemy countries for the outbreak. So the inhabitants of today's Italy, Germany, United Kingdom named syphilis the French disease. The French named it the Neapolitan disease. The Russians assigned the name the Polish disease. The Polish called it the German disease. The Danish, the Portuguese, and the inhabitants of Northern Africa named it the Spanish or Castilian disease. And the Turks coined the term the Christian disease. Moreover, in Northern Italy, the Muslims named the Northern India. The Muslims named the Hindu for the outbreak of the infliction. However, the Hindu blamed the Muslims. And in the end, everyone blamed the Europeans. <laughs> now, I love how humorous that the end of that quote sounds. In the end, everyone blamed the Europeans. So syphilis is something you just sort of shuck to the people you don't like that much for causing it. But that journal went on to explain a few ideas as to where the disease came from. There's there is a hypothesis called the pre-Columbian hypothesis. It says that the bacteria that causes syphilis in humans has been around since 15,000 BCE, but it didn't mutate into that sexually transmitted version that we've all come to know and love until about 3,000 BCE. It came from endemic syphilis, also known as Bejel. It's like a different version of syphilis. Bejel is characterized by lesions of the skin and bones that begin in the mouth and progress gradually in stages. How, how delightful. The late stages are the most severe. Bejel is very common in dry, hot climates, especially in the countries in the eastern Mediterranean region and in Saharan West Africa. That seems to be a reoccurring pattern, I notice in my research. Syphilis break, breakouts, you know, they tend to occur in areas with specific climate, you know. So climate has something to do with it. So the pre-Columbian hypothesis says modern STD syphilis came from Bejel in southwest, southwestern Asia uh, because of climate change during post-glacial era. It then spread to Europe and the rest of the world. At first, syphilis wasn't that big of a deal. It was kind of like a mild disease you didn't have to worry about. It gave you spots and stuff, but that was about it. Uh, but it too mutated and became much more harmful to humans. Towards the end of the 15th century, it underwent lots of mutations and became pretty nasty. Um, end of 15th century, you know, end of the 1400s, what happened in the end of the 1400s that might have caused that? Well, we're about to get into that. There's the, uh, so with the Columbian hypothesis here. So we had the pre-Columbian hypothesis. This is the Columbian one. 
That says syphilis only showed up in the old world when Christopher Columbus brought it back from the new world, the Americas, in 1943. This hypothesis is still a popular hypothesis today, and good reason for it. There are Spanish documents that support the Colombian hypothesis. Lots of people at the time were quick to point the finger at the indigenous people of Americas. More recently, uh, scientists who are trying to disprove this, actually, have been trying to prove the existence of syphilis in the old world before the Columbus discovery by examining skeletal remains with radiocarbon dating. They they took uh, for they look for evidence of lesions that would match syphilis symptoms. More careful examining of such remains proved that all skeletal parts with specific luetic uh, lesions dated not before, but after 1942. So they tried to find syphilis in skeletal remains in Europe before 1942, but everything they looked at was just after 1942. So that would kind of support the Columbian hypothesis. Then years later, American scientists were able to find syphilis-like lesions on skeletal remains throughout the Americas, and those bones dated back thousands of years, aka before contact with Columbus in 1942. So there, you know, there is evidence to support the Columbian hypothesis that maybe syphilis did exist before Columbus went over there, but seems like he brought something special back with him and it hit Europe hard. Um, so the late 15th century, that's when syphilis really took off. It was like their summer of love, that bacteria. But in the end of the scientific community, isn't entirely sure where syphilis came from. Just because the skeletal remains they did find had that evidence doesn't mean they didn't find, you know, maybe they didn't dig the right hole to find skeletal remains that proved otherwise. You never know. One thing we do know for sure is that the 15th century was a big year for syphilis. <laughs> that was like their heyday. Um, or they, that was a big century, big century for them. Once the year 1580 rolled around, syphilis was the biggest disease to hit Europe since the Black Death. Patients were clogging clinics all throughout London, and there was like no end in sight. Um, without antibiotics, victims faced the full brunt of the disease. Open sores, nasty rashes, blindness, dementia, and patchy hair loss. In the early 16th century, the main treatments for syphilis were guaiacum or holywood. And now I had to look up guaiacum and I had to look up what it was and what the treatment entailed. I was not disappointed. Guaiacum is an evergreen tree form, uh, of the Caribbean and tropical America, formerly important for its hard, heavy, oily timber. Um, I guess that was a thing back then. You treated a disease from wherever you thought it came from. So guaiacum is from the Americas. They thought syphilis is from the Americas. Very well might have been. So they thought, well, we'll take this tree that they use for their own healing to try to treat this. I kind of get where they're coming from that, but it didn't really work out that way. Guaiacum treatment, this is how they did it. <laughs> Guaiacum treatment requirements were diarrhea induced by enemas and profuse sweating by resting for 40 days in a dark and hot room, following a strict fasting therapy. Guaiacum was administered externally in ointments and internally in potions. So <laughs> think of getting an enema induced diarrhea followed by 40 days in a dark and hot room where you couldn't eat anything just to have the treatment rarely cure the syphilis. <laughs> now compare that to today's a nice simple shot of penicillin that virtually always cures your syphilis. You know, modern medicine is the bee's knees because <laughs> I would not want to do that. <laughs> Enema-induced diarrhea, sitting all day, not being able to eat in a dark, hot room. Probably no one wants to visit you because you smell of diarrhea and it's, <laughs> it's a dark, hot room. Ugh. Another pre-penicillin treatment for the pox, that's a popular street name for syphilis, was mercury. 
if you know anything about mercury, also was not a pleasant experience. So mercury was a skin induction or ointments. Might I mention that mercury treatments also have horrible side effects. You get cloudy urine, headaches, irritation, soreness, or swelling of the gums, uh, skin rash, unusual redness of the skin. If you've ever read Al- uh, Alice in Wonderland, The Mad Hatter, the reason why the Mad Hatter was mad was because back then they made hats with mercury. And so, you know, that was very common. The, the guys who made hats, the hatters, were mad because they were working with mercury all day. So mercury makes you go nuts. It's not it's not a good thing to use usually. So that's also what they used to treat this. <laughs> Pre-penicillin treatment was by and large the province of the barber and wound surgeon so your barber was the one who was treating your std and he frequently did it with mercury and guaiacum diarrhea inducing enemas so (laughs) you know i guess it's pretty convenient uh you may have syphilis but at least you can get that treated at the same place that helps tidy up your hair and powdered wigs so there's a silver lining. Uh, sweat baths were also used as it was thought induced salivation and salivation and sweating eliminated syphilitic poisons. Uh, but really, I think it just dehydrated the patients. Um, but symptoms of syphilis that played the most interest effect, interesting effect on history was baldness. Being bald at the time was socially was social death. Basically, if you were bald, it brought shame upon your family members, which I find kind of odd. If I'm going to if I'm going to be bald, why would that bring shame upon like my sister? You know, uh, Cass, she would probably just laugh at me about it. She, she wouldn't be shamed about it. On the blog, I have this really really gruesome picture of a guy with syphilis, uh, you know, the the lesions on his head, and really nasty. Check it out. So indirectly, syphilis was what made wigs and wig making all the rage. You're wondering how why this episode is titled what's with the powdered wigs talk about syphilis well here we go here's how it ties in uh syphilis made people bald bald what being bald was super super socially you know not good um it was also it was really cool to have long flowing hair so all these bald people are like what are we gonna do so they hired these wig makers and they got this long hair everyone and their mother had syphilis they didn't have penicillin so syphilis cause cases frequently progressed to late stages um of not just baldness, but big, bloody, gruesome sores and lesions on the face and head. So the idea was that large wigs made of horse, goat, and human hair to cover up all those legions, um, these wigs were called perukes. That's like just an old term for wig. Peruke. P-E-R-U-K-E-S. Perukes. Now, they powder the wigs to keep them from clean... Uh, to keep them cleaner and to keep parasites out and they added lavender and orange orange scents to hide the stench of their open head and face wounds <sighs> this is so gruesome i got a picture of uh king louis the, the 14th here with his big wig check that out at first wigs weren't really stylish as they were a necessary cosmetic cover-up of a hideous medical condition so it's just something you did to cover up you know, the nastiness of your syphilis head until King Louis the 14th. Um, he lived from 1638 to 1715, found out he was the oldest living monarch or not the oldest living, but the longest running monarch for like 72 years. He was King. Um, but he started to lose his hair and he employed dozens, like, I think it was like 48 wig makers to make sure his necessary wig looked good. So he was, you know, he's a king after all. So if he's going to have to wear a wig, it's going to be king worthy, right? Then just five years later, 
King Louis XIV started wearing his custom-made wigs, his cousin, King Charles of England, started to do the same. He, too, had a wig fit for royalty. Now, he, his hair was going gray, so he got a wig. Um, historians believe both of them wig-wearing kings had syphilis, and the wigs were there to cover that up, too. Not just they were bald and going gray. But when the aristocrats and European snobs of the day noticed their supposed divine power-wielding monarch was supporting a was sporting a wig, they copied the look. The wig took uh, the wig look was even copied by upper middle class members of European society. That is how the powdered wig fad was born via syphilis. Wigs became more expensive since everyone was worth mentioning started to buy them up. They became a status symbol. If you wore an old, creepy, curled, powdered wig around town in Europe, you were somebody. Now, common wigs cost about a week's pay, 25 shillings, for a middle-class citizen of London. But, of course, the peacocking didn't stop there. It, uh, it soon became the standard that the bigger the wig, the more status you acquired. The term big wig was coined to describe snobs who could afford big poofy perukes. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Big poofy perukes. Now, the wig peacocking is just a, you know, different era, same concept at play here. We still wear jewelry, drive big fancy cars, and do all sorts of things to display our status in society. Thank goodness we don't do it with wigs anymore, though, because these things look terribly uncomfortable to me. I do not want to wear one of these wigs. Uh, they make paintings of the day quite interesting. You have these cool guys who think they're all that, and they have <laughs> this ridiculous mop hanging off their head. So, like any fad, it took on a life of its own. King Louis and Charles died, but the ridiculous wig style that they created lived on for quite some time. One of the main reasons for it living on was for practical reasons, you know, because Europeans were really known for their hygiene, you know? <laughs> they weren't. They weren't. They were disgusting. When they came to the Americas, the indigenous people were like, why do you stink? You know, people living in huts and, you know, farming all day, they thought the Europeans smelled bad, the people from the cities. So, bad hygiene. And... That meant lice was rampant through the uh, continent at the time, so Europe had a terrible lice problem. Wearing a wig meant these people shaved their heads, so the fad made the lice infest the wig instead of irritating their scalps. And think about it, getting lice out of an inanimate object like a wig is a lot easier than getting them out of your own hair. You can boil the wig, send it to a professional to just delouse it. Tons of options there. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lice begoner. Then the wigs started to die off uh, in, in style. During the 1790s, the French Revolution was in full swing. The commoners saw the wig as a symbol of their oppressors, uh, that their oppressors wore, and so it quickly went out of style. Um, then in 1795, William Pitt levied a tax on hair powder in Britain. These two events within the same decade in the two countries that started the craze put an end to the wig-wearing days of the common people. And while wearing natural hair has been the norm ever since, for everyday people, the British Parliament still requires a wig for formal court attire. Today, today, in 2021, um, you can look at British Parliament and, you know, their court proceedings, and these guys are still wearing these ridiculous wigs. Uh, if you've ever watched um, About Time, I think it's what it's called. A lot of British shows where there's a lawyer or whatever, they look ridiculous. You have this cool character, he puts on this wig, you're like, what are you doing? You look weird. 
And it's one of it's it's one thing to hold on to an old style in your own country, but to make all of your colonies adopt the same ridiculous tradition just seems cruel. Today, Canada and Australia's legal systems don't sport white wigs with、uh, little poofy curls in them, but unfortunately, former colonies like Jamaica and most former African colonies still do. I have a couple of headlines here in the blog post. You know, it's been 50 years since Britain left. Why are so many African judges still wearing wigs? And you have pictures of these. African judges wearing these ridiculous wigs. It, they don't. They look awful. And there's this Jamaican speaker wearing his wig as well. You know, thankfully those former colonies are starting to change the wig wearing policy due to these, you know, articles saying like, why are we still doing this? So it probably will change pretty soon. But because once you know the the history behind these wigs, it seems even more ridiculous. You know, they wore them to hide their syphilis, and you know. That's all I've got. That's all I've got for the history of wigs. I know I talked a lot more about syphilis than powdered wigs, but the syphilis part was a lot more interesting to me. Plus, if we want to be more historically accurate and inclusive, we should start calling them not powdered wigs, but syphilis wigs instead. Yeah, I think we could probably get that to catch on, and that might help these colonies break that chain of wearing these wigs in formal court attire. They're syphilis wigs, okay? Yeah, they're powdered, but if you look at the history, they're syphilis wigs. And we should call them that. <laughs> Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Be sure to check out all the sources I used for the episode on the blog. I used everything from a Joe Rogan podcast clip to published scholarly articles, all of which, like I said, are included in, in the accompanying blog post.、Um, if you check those out, you'll you know find a lot of interesting reads. So、um, tune in next week, and thanks for listening. Catch you later.